podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hi, this is Paul Dennett with a mini history podcast. This is going to be my second one on Don Bradman. The first one that I released back on the 6th of April 2020 detailed the amazing month in which he went from a nobody to an Australian celebrity and forced his way into the test side in the process. Well, this one continues the story. I'm going to talk about the beginning of Don Bradman's test career. I think it's one of the greatest cricket stories ever, and I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I do. So I want to take you right back to the 3rd of December 1928 to the Brisbane Exhibition Ground. It's day three of the first test match of the Ashes of 1928-29. Don Bradman, aged 20, is sitting padded up, ready to bat. He's to go in next at number seven of all positions, and it'll be his first ever innings in test match cricket. To this point, the first test had been a total disaster for Australia. England had batted first and had made a huge score of 521. By the end of day two, Australia had slumped to four for 44. The next day was Sunday, a rest day. Such was the overwhelming interest in the cricket, Sydney's Daily Telegraph had tracked the Australian players down while they were out relaxing in Brisbane. Bradman had been asked what his plans were for that night. His answer reveals some of his character, direct, confident and serious. He wasn't being arrogant, he was just being honest. I'm going to bed early. I've got a lot to do tomorrow. This is the story of what happened next. The story of Don Bradman in the first three test matches of the Ashes of 1928-29. It's hard to emphasise just how crushingly disappointing the match had been so far for the Australian public and especially for the people of Brisbane. This was the first time Brisbane had ever hosted a test match. Nowadays, it's a confident city of two and a half million people, Australia's third biggest. But back then... It was a largely ignored town a long way from the big centres of Sydney and Melbourne. Suddenly for a week, the residents of Brisbane could claim to be at the epicentre of the British Empire. In the words of cricket journalist Johnny Moyes in Sydney's Daily Telegraph, Queensland is taking its first test very seriously and it is the sole topic of conversation. Brisbane is on the eve of the greatest sporting event in her history. It wasn't just Brisbane though, interest throughout Australia for the Ashes was massive. The great Australian side of the early 1920s was fading. The current team was ageing and full of stodgy players. They'd lost the Ashes in England in 1926, the first time Australia had lost the Ashes since the Great War, and the Australian public expected their team to win them straight back. Day one actually hadn't been that bad. Australia had held its own, keeping England to 5 for 271, in front of a crowd of 22,351, nearly 10% of Brisbane's total population. Brisbane's Telegraph newspaper described the scene as Australia walked onto the field. When Ryder led his men onto the field, with ten green caps following, the crowd, en masse, rose to its feet as though honouring eleven kings. 
The atmosphere was more feverish than on a cup day. People felt sick with excitement. Bradman had had a good first day. He'd run out English superstar Jack Hobbs with a powerful throw from the deep, and he was clearly a crowd favourite. Sydney's referee newspaper captured the mood. Bradman's speed and accuracy in the outfield were commented upon by everyone. The contrast between his slippery movements and those of a few others was very vivid. Day two was a Saturday, and even more people crammed in, the crowd reaching 25,253. They were to witness one of the bleakest days in Australian cricket history. In addition to seeing England pile on the runs and Australia collapse to be 4 for 44, they also saw Australia's only fast bowler in the match, Jack Gregory, badly injure his knee. Gregory, an Australian hero at the time, took no further part in the match and in fact never played cricket again. So Australia trailed England's 521 by 477 runs. The rest day followed and no doubt Bradman did indeed have an early night. Then Monday dawned and the crowds poured in hoping for a miracle. Brisbane's Telegraph said, The sentiment of many thousands of people Monday was, Why let business interfere with cricket? It was a working day, but that did not prevent a big crowd from attending. England captain Percy Chapman led his players out on a gorgeous Brisbane day. Not a cloud in the sky, the temperature rapidly rising. With the score on 71, the fifth wicket fell, and finally, Don Bradman came out to bat for the first time in a test match. In the words of the Brisbane Courier, The entry of Bradman into the arena was the signal for general rejoicing. Here was a batsman who would give Chapman's merry men something to think about. Go on, Braddy, yelled the crowd. Australia's looking to you. And in the Brisbane Telegraph, Go on, Braddy. Crowd cheers its favourite. Bradman was cheered to the echo. There is not a more popular figure in the match than Bradman. Bradman shaped up to Harold Larwood. Larwood, the coal miner from Nottingham, would of course make his fame in four years' time as the spearhead of the bodyline attack, but his reputation was already significant. He was 24 years old and exceedingly fast. The Australian papers were likening him to a cyclone. He'd taken four of the five wickets to fall so far, and Wisden's reporter at the match said this was the fastest he'd ever seen Larwood bowl. How would Bradman have been feeling? Excited, yes, but calm. One of his extraordinary features was his apparent nervelessness when batting. Australian cricketing legend Ian Chappell has highlighted that one of Bradman's unique strengths was that he batted in the middle in the same way as he did in the nets. No one else before or since has been able to do this to the extent that Bradman did. He quickly took a single off Larwood and was off the mark in test cricket. When Hammond came on, Bradman struck him for three consecutive boundaries and then another a few minutes later. On 18, Bradman was facing England's fine seam bowler Morris Tate. Bradman's biographer, Irving Rosenwater, described what happened next. With a well-disguised action, he pitched him a tempting-looking ball on the leg stump, which appeared to be identical with previous deliveries. It was, however, Tate's slower ball, and caused Bradman to hit too soon. He missed it, and was clearly LBW. That's right, Bradman, in his first test innings, had failed. The Brisbane Telegraph showed the response of the crowd. Although the day was bright and flooded with sunshine, a depressing gloom descended upon the crowd when the popular young Bradman was dismissed by Tate. Bradman was sympathetically cheered. It certainly does look sick, someone was heard to say. Bradman's intense disappointment would have been made worse by the fact that he didn't think that he was out. I've only ever heard him comment negatively on two decisions he received in his test career, and this was one of them. Years later, he was quoted... On Peter Baxter's excellent BBC radio documentary, The Poms Down Under, in 1928-29, this is what he had to say. I made 18 in the first innings. I think the history books will show I got, had four fours in that. 
And uh, even to this day, uh, I still feel that uh, I may just have been a little unlucky to have been given out LBW, although I don't question up by a decision. Unlucky or not, of course, it didn't matter. Brabham was out, and Australia was soon all out too, for a paltry 122. Despite having a colossal lead of 399, England captain Percy Chapman elected to bat again. And why not? Back in those days, there were timeless tests in Australia. Australia took the field in a sorry state. In addition to Jack Gregory, Australia's other opening bowler, Charlie Kellaway, was now also unavailable. He'd come down with food poisoning. And England batted throughout all of day three and most of day four, very slowly, piling on the agony. Finally, England declared on 8 for 342, late on day four, setting Australia a gargantuan 742 to win. And then to make Australia's desperate situation even worse, that night it poured with rain. Back then, amazingly, test match pitches were not allowed to be covered once the game began. And this meant that after a rain delay, batsmen would bat on a wet, drying wicket, the notorious sticky wicket. Some balls would keep low, others would rear up dangerously, batting became almost a lottery. Australian wickets fell quickly, and with the score on 4 for 49, Bradman came out to bat a second time. Sheffield Shield pitches were covered in Australia when it rained, and Bradman had never before encountered a sticky wicket. After scoring one run, he was out, caught in close off the bowling of slow left-arm orthodox spinner Jack White. Bradman's first test had ended in complete failure, with scores of just 18 and 1. Australia, with two unable to bat, made just 66 and lost by 675 runs. It was the biggest runs loss in test history by any team. Over nine decades later, it still is. Nothing else is even close. The second worst runs loss is by 113 runs fewer. The magnitude of the defeat was beyond just embarrassing. It was a humiliation. Indeed, some were calling it a national disgrace. The Sydney Morning Herald's huge headlines read, Australians routed. Heaviest defeat in test history. Feeble resistance. Triumph of English bowlers. And in the article they added, What should have been an orderly attempt to regain some lost prestige developed into utter and disgraceful rout. And then they went through the lineup, savaging the second innings dismissals. Bradman, they said, was out to a schoolboyish stroke. Charlie Kellaway, who'd played in the match but come down with food poisoning, was very succinct, saying that Bradman was not up to test match standard. And Morris Tate, the English bowler who'd dismissed Bradman in the first innings, made a somewhat ill-considered joke to Jack White, the bowler who'd got him in the second. Rosenwater recounts, Morris Tate regarded Bradman as his rabbit and playfully accused Jack White of poaching him in the second innings before Tate could attack him himself. Unfortunately for Tate, and for many other English bowlers, Don Bradman overheard the reproof. Tate's sense of humour was lost on the young Bradman. So as the players boarded trains south to Sydney for the second test, Bradman must have been vibrating with determination to seek revenge on his home ground. He'd played England twice at the Sydney cricket ground in lead-up matches, scoring 295 runs at an average of 147.5. It was the perfect venue for redemption. But would he be picked? As amazing as it seems today, serious questions were being asked about Bradman's position in the side. He'd been chosen in the squad for the second test, but would he be in the starting 11? I'm about to tell you. (music) 
Extraordinary interest in Sydney Test, proclaimed the referee newspaper from Sydney. Public interest in a Sydney Test match has never been greater. And in the lead-up, there was significant debate about a vital question. Who will carry the lemon squash? asked the Labor Daily. The Sydney Morning Herald speculated that the makeup of the squad chosen might mean that Bradman, runmaker and run saver, would have to be dropped. This would be a tragedy. On the morning of the game, the decision was made. And it was indeed to be Don Bradman who would be carrying the lemon squash. Irving Rosenwater described the scene. Bradman was omitted from the second test to his great disappointment. Captain Jack Ryder told him the news in the dressing room a quarter of an hour before the start. It was the one and only occasion in Bradman's life in any cricket, first class or minor, that he was made 12th man. This decision has, of course, gone down as the biggest selection blunder in the history of cricket. And fair enough, too. It was ridiculous. The selectors had picked three spinners in the squad. One of these was 46-year-old Don Blackie, who had become the oldest test debutant ever. Another was fellow 46-year-old Bert Ironmonger. But the selectors didn't choose a single out-and-out fast bowler. And as such, to avoid embarrassment when they chose the starting 11, they needed to pick some batsmen who bowled some medium pace. Bradman didn't. And so extraordinarily, he was dropped from the side effectively because of his bowling. Even the normally restrained Bradman had a gentle go at the selectors in his autobiography. Despite my season's total of nearly 600 runs with an average of 85 per innings, I was relegated to 12th man. And so the second test began in front of a Friday first day crowd of 40,773 at the time, the biggest first day SCG test crowd ever. But they were to be disappointed as Australia finished day one on 8 for 251. In the light of this score, the referee newspaper unloaded on the selectors. Bradman's omission. The big crowd was subjected to a succession of jolts. First was the exclusion of D. Bradman from the team. Here was Australia literally crying for new blood. This youngster had scored more runs in the season's first-class matches than any other player, had been more successful against the English bowling than anyone else. The selectors were condemned on all sides, and they earned the criticism. The Evening News in Sydney reported there were some piquant comments about the dropping of Bradman. The paper quoted one fan as saying, they ought to have their brains brushed. During the day's play, a significant incident occurred. Australia's best batsman, Bill Ponsford, was struck on the hand from a quick delivery from Harold Larwood. If you've ever seen gloves of the era, it'll come as no surprise that his hand was broken, and indeed, for the rest of his life, he had a crooked little finger. As Ponsford left the ground in agony, England captain Percy Chapman carried Ponsford's gloves and bat to the gate and handed them to Bradman in his capacity as 12th man. It must have been quite a moment for Bradman. No doubt he felt genuine sympathy for Ponsford, but at the same time, he would have to have recognised the potential opportunity that this injury would create. Ponsford was normally an opener, but in this game he had batted at number five, and a new middle-order batsman would now be needed for the next test. The immediate impact of the injury was that Bradman now fielded for the rest of the test match. Australia was all out early on day two for 253, and Bradman took his place on the field in front of a colossal crowd of 58,446. At the time, it was the highest cricket crowd ever anywhere in the world. It's still the highest SCG cricket crowd to this day. Bradman was once again to bear witness to a marathon England innings. Walter Hammond was the star, making 251 from 605 balls, as England amassed a score of 636. And predictably, 
they went on to record another crushing win to take a 2-0 lead in the series. Prior to the third test, Bradman had a chance to push his claims for selection in a Sheffield Shield game against Victoria in Melbourne. In the first innings, Bradman was out bowled for just one. After his stellar run of form, he was now in a bit of a slump. His most recent innings were 18, 18, 1 and 1. Before he batted a second time, news of his likely inclusion in the squad for the next test had appeared in the press. But two of the four Melbourne papers predicted he would again be 12th man. In the words of the Sun from Sydney, Bradman had much at stake after his first innings failure, as he came out to bat in the second innings. And this time, he was back to his best. The game itself ended in a draw, and at the finish, Bradman was not out on 71. The selectors announced a squad of 13 that evening, and as expected, Bradman was chosen. And by the morning of the test match, the papers were confidently predicting that the youngster was going to get another chance. Sure enough, when the names of the Australian eleven were loaded onto the Melbourne Cricket Ground scoreboard, the name Bradman was amongst them again. Incidentally, it's hard to know how much that 71 not out under the gaze of the selectors helped, but it may have been significant. Not that you'd know from Bradman's autobiography. He didn't mention how many runs he scored and spared only five words for what he did in the game. My own contribution was negligible. In any case, he was getting another chance at Test Cricket after having fielded for 25 and a half hours in the first two tests as Australia were thrashed, he'd be back in action with the ashes on the line at the mighty Melbourne Cricket Ground. Saturday the 29th of December 1928. Rarely, if ever, has a test match in Australia been as keenly anticipated as the third test of the 1928-29 Ashes. In the Adelaide Advertiser, cricket journalist and former test player Arthur Maley described the scene. Big interest in Melbourne. Melbourne seems to be the mecca of cricketers and cricket enthusiasts. Taxi drivers talk cricket with their passengers and are so engrossed with the subject that they forget to stop the clock. And a barber next door describes Hammond's off-drive with a flourish of the razor which begins at your left ear and clips a piece off your right. Melburnians had an extra incentive to turn up to knock Sydney out of the record books. A huge crowd were in attendance before a ball was bowled and it grew and grew, eventually reaching 63,247. It was almost too big. The papers of the day show photos of some disgruntled men sitting behind one of the stands, having failed to find a spot to sit. And at one point, the crowd surged forward and 300 people spilled onto the arena itself and had to be removed by police. The Sydney Sun gave an evocative description of the scene. Standing shoulder to shoulder on a vast inclined plain of blistering asphalt and sitting with stoicism on terraces of bare concrete surcharged with the heat of a huge furnace, an immense Melbourne crowd of 63,000 swayed, rocked, panted, howled, cheered, fought and perspired. Australia batted first and again started badly, losing two quick wickets. With the score at 2 for 23, Arthur Maley wrote that the scoreboard was repulsive to the eye. It made one shudder to behold it. Another wicket fell and at 3 for 57, Australia were in trouble. This brought Australia's captain, Victorian Jack Ryder, to the crease to join New South Wales captain, Alan Kippax. Bradman was to come in at the fall of the next wicket. To the joy of the crowd, Kippax and Ryder produced a partnership, and it was sending the crowd delirious. When Ryder unexpectedly hooked Larwood for six, Arthur Maley wrote, It was probably the most enthusiastically greeted six in the history of Australian cricket. Eventually, Alan Kippax reached a century, and in the words of the Sun, 
The sight was one to carry in the memory for all time. The crowd became absolutely hysterical with delight. Hats went in the air. Over 60,000 throats roared appreciation. Over 120,000 hands went together, clapping frantically for at least three minutes until it seemed as if the rattle of the cheering must lift roofs from the stand. The Englishman standing amazed at the remarkable demonstration. Kipax faced up to Larwood again, with the crowd still buzzing. Larwood bowled him a very fast bouncer, and he belted it off the middle of the bat. The ball skimmed low and hard in the direction of fine leg, but to the shock of the crowd, Kipax had picked out Jardine, and the future captain held on to a sharp catch. The partnership was broken. The score was four for 218. The game was back in the balance. If anything, England were now back on top. There were 50 minutes left of play on day one. The crowd rose and applauded Kipak so loudly as he left the ground that the Sydney Morning Herald reported the modest player ran the last few yards to escape the storm of cheering. And it was into this febrile atmosphere that Don Bradman would enter to play his third innings in Test cricket. 21-year-old all-rounder from Melbourne, Ted Abeckett, was due to bat at number eight. And he's quoted by Bradman biographer Roland Perry describing what came next after the crowd applauded Kipax from the field. I was in the dressing room with Don. There was this eerie drop in the volume, as if someone had shut a window suddenly. I wished him luck, and he walked out. Then there was a colossal roar, which hit us like a tornado in a wind tunnel, as Bradman became visible to the spectators. I'd heard mighty roars in football games, but nothing like that spontaneous blast. What a day for the world record crowd. After the thrill of the Kipax and Ryder partnership, they were now getting to see if Australia's next big thing could really handle the big time or not. According to the Sydney Sun, you can imagine what the scene was like when young Don Bradman walked into the arena of battle. The air was electrical. The roars of the crowd were still echoing through the stands. But the youngster from St George strode out, just as with the knight who slaughtered the dragon, just brimful of confidence. It was not an easy time to bat. England's two main bowlers, Larwood and Tate, were ready to unleash with the new ball. But Bradman seemed to find the bowling easy to the delight of the crowd. The Sydney Morning Herald described how Bradman, for 50 minutes, treated the attack with the utmost nonchalance. Larwood, Tate and White had no terrors for him. And according to Melbourne's Sporting Globe, Bradman was laying on the wood and his style greatly pleased the crowd. He looks the goods all right. Australia reached the end of the day's play without losing another wicket. Ryder was on 111, and Bradman finished on 26. The score was 4 for 276. It was marginal as to who was on top, but the Australian public were just so pleased that finally Australia was giving a yelp. To give you an idea of how they felt, take this cartoon, which appeared in Sydney's Sun newspaper. It's titled, To Commemorate a Wonderful Day. And the setting is a church, it's a baptism. And the minister is asking, and what is his name? And the father, whose name must be Mr Snooks, answers with a big beaming smile to the shock of the minister and also amusingly to the shock of the baby, John Ryder Allen Kipax Don Bradman Melbourne Snooks. I find it quite incredible that at this stage when Bradman had scored just 45 runs in his test career, already jokes were being made about people naming their kids after him. The next day was Sunday, the rest day. The Monday was the last day of 1928 and although not technically a holiday, plenty of people had the day off and consequently Another colossal crowd flocked to the MCG. This time, it was 62,259, almost breaking the record set on day one. Yet again, Australia made a bad start. Ryder was out in the third over. Bird Oldfield soon followed. This brought Ted Beckett on test debut to the crease. Australia were six for 287, 
and on the verge of a crisis. Bradman and a Beckett defended grimly. Runs came slowly. There was great tension in the stadium. Even though the scoring was slow, the cricket was gripping and the crowd were immersed in it. Ever so gradually, the score mounted and Bradman moved into the 40s for the first time. He was stuck on 49 for quite a while, but then faced Larwood and late cut him for two, queuing long, sustained applause from the crowd. For the first time in Test cricket, Don Bradman had made a 50. Ponsford, not playing because of his broken hand, was impressed. In his column in The Sun, he wrote... Too much credit cannot be given to Bradman for both at his opening when he faced Larwood with the new ball and again this morning when it seemed that the side would collapse, he showed fine fighting qualities. He is designed for big things. Bradman and a Beckett slowly improved Australia's position until an hour after lunch when Bradman was bowled for 79. No one present could have known it, but they had just witnessed a very rare event. Throughout the rest of his test career, if Bradman reached this many runs, a century was almost guaranteed. Indeed, only twice more would he get to 79 and not go on to make 100. Australia lost its last three wickets for only 24 to be all out for 397. A Beckett made 41. It was a goodish score, probably just above par, and many more than had looked likely after the early wickets of Ryder and Oldfield. England finished the day on 1 for 47. The Australian press was enthusiastic at Bradman and a Beckett's vital 86-run partnership. A banner headline in the Sydney Sun proclaimed, Two Colts come to the rescue of Australia. Gallant Knox. Bradman makes a brilliant 79. The youngsters of the team carried on like veterans and defied the English attack. They each played the game right up to the hilt. The evening news in England said, The highest tribute must be paid to the skill of the two boys, Bradman and Beckett. Their patient partnership suggests that they possess cricket qualities ordinarily associated only with maturity. It is a great day for Australia, for her youth has made good. And again, to give you a bit of an idea of the impact that the cricket was having, the next day, New Year's Day, Cool and Gatter on the Gold Coast held their annual beach fancy dress parade. One of the costumes to win a highly commended prize was worn by a girl named Anna Kroll. Her costume? Don Bradman. Some commentators, though, had been a little bit critical of the slow rate of scoring. The Telegraph in Brisbane reported, Dreary day at Melbourne Cricket Ground. One of the dreariest days cricket in the history of test matches between Australia and England. That about sums up the play yesterday. And Australia did score very slowly on day two, going at only 1.6 runs per over. However, England were even slower when they batted, scoring only at 1.47 in their 32 overs. As for Bradman, his 79 came off 220 balls, And this was to be, effectively, the slowest innings of his entire career. For innings in which he scored 20 or more runs, he only batted more slowly than this once, and that was when fighting for a draw. Typically, Bradman was a highly aggressive batsman. Bradman's career strike rate was between 61 and 62. This compares favourably to modern players. Ricky Ponting, for example, was 58.7. Chris Gale's strike rate was 60.3, and Ian Botham's 60.7. England batted well in reply, and they managed to make 417 batting into the fourth day, Hammond top scoring with 200. At the end of that fourth day, Australia were 2 for 118 with a lead of 98. Day 5 began. It was a hot, nasty day with a scorching wind coming from the desert to the northwest. Yet again, Australia began poorly. Kipax was out early, and Ryder followed soon after. Australia only led by 123 and were on the brink of losing the game. 
On the giant scoreboard, the name Ryder was removed and replaced with Bradman. One of the spectators was Billy Hughes, Australian Prime Minister from 1915 to 1923 and a bigger cricket tragic than John Howard. He later wrote of Bradman's entrance. As he came out, the crowd gave him a tremendous reception. Little more than a boy, his name was in all men's mouths. The crowd had come there to see him bat. Bradman joined Woodville in the middle, and the pair began very slowly. According to the Sun, the batsmen were fighting dourly, and the crowd was strangely silent, watching the tense battle of the bat to beat the ball. Runs were few and far between. The two ground their way towards lunch. Bradman had some luck when a ball from spin bowler Jack White kept low and shot through his defences, narrowly missing the stumps. At the break, Bradman was just nine not out after having batted for 53 minutes. After lunch, it was more of the same. Eventually, Woodville reached his century, but he was out soon after. Australia's lead was only 181, and Bradman, who'd been at the crease for 86 minutes, had only scored 24. But although the dismissal of Woodville would have been viewed as a disaster by the crowd, it had a significant positive impact. It freed up Bradman to start playing more positively. In The Sun, Ponsford said, Bradman was now playing the correct game. He was forcing the pace, going for his shots freely. In an advantage to Australia, although the new ball had now been taken, Larwood was not given it because he was battling a sore ankle. Bird Oldfield battled desperately, trying to hold up an end, struggling with the bowling throughout. Eventually, he was bowled by left-arm spinner Jack White. White, the bowler who had dismissed Bradman in the second innings in Brisbane, was a big threat. But this was not a sticky wicket, and Bradman handled him much differently. Former Australian captain M.A. Noble on Melbourne radio station 3LO said, I noticed a wonderful improvement in Bradman's batting after Woodville left. He rose to the occasion in a splendid manner. He became aggressive, and taking his courage in both hands, unlike his predecessors, went down the pitch to White and gave him the long handle. After Oldfield's departure, Bradman was joined by a Beckett. Bradman had moved into the 40s, and facing White, jumped down the pitch and belted him past mid-off for four, sending the crowd into a frenzy. Soon on 49, he faced White again, and as described by the Sun... And then there was frantic cheering as he straight hit him along the ground for four and brought 53 opposite his name. But the hoped-for partnership didn't eventuate as, on the stroke of T, a Beckett was out for six. Australia went into the break at seven for 252, a lead of 232 with Bradman on 67. The Sydney Morning Herald said, in reference to Australia's lead at T, Not enough was the general verdict, but the crowd was not prepared for what was to come. In an exhibition of every variety of stroke, Bradman hit the bowlers to every quarter of the field. The English bowlers have not previously sustained such a terrific onslaught. And M.A. Noble, this time in print, had this to say, What a splendid innings Bradman played after four o'clock. He took charge of the attack. He pasted and knocked the stuffing out of the bowling. Australia's score and lead mounted. When they reached 271, it meant that 70 had been scored since the departure of Woodville. Of these, Bradman's partners had contributed a total of only 18. As Bradman surged through the 70s and 80s, a new phenomenon began to occur. People in the city of Melbourne, hearing the progress of the game on that newfangled invention, the radio, made snap decisions to head to the ground. Consequently, the crowd, which had been building slowly throughout the day, grew rapidly after tea and eventually reached 33,662. The cricket was gripping the nation. In Ballarat, the fire brigade were getting scores from the radio and posting them on a blackboard at the entrance to the fire station. In Launceston, the Hobart Mercury reported, 
In the offices in the city, there was one continual question throughout the afternoon. What is the latest score? The test matches, as a rule, excite particular interest, but the present game has eclipsed all records in this respect in Launceston. The registered news pictorial in Adelaide said, If a foreigner who knew nothing about cricket had stepped into King William Street, or any other street of Adelaide for that matter, he would have thought the populace had gone mad. The word Bradman was on everyone's lips. Even in remote Kalgoorlie, the cricket was holding sway, with the Kalgoorlie minor newspaper talking about Bradman's remarkable contribution and great style. Incidentally, the newspaper was just six pages in length, yet the article in the test match was 4,900 words. With Larwood unfit to bowl, England captain Percy Chapman was cycling through his remaining options. The Sydney Morning Herald wrote, White had been mastered. Bradman then turned his attention to Geary. A terrific off-drive worthy of any of the champions flashed past White fielding deep and brought up 300. On 96, Bradman received a short ball from White. He seized upon it and pulled it. Bradman and partner Oxenham haired up and down the pitch as George Geary retrieved the ball and hurled it back in. Bradman completed his third run and then turned for a tight fourth. The Sydney Morning Herald described what happened next. The batsman ran the fourth as Geary's throw came to Chapman and the English captain sent the ball hard to Duckworth. Bradman then was a yard beyond the crease and the cheering, which had begun with the stroke, reached greater intensity than that which greeted Kipax on Monday. It was an amazing ovation, section after section of the crowd taking up the cheers. In Sydney's Daily Telegraph, Johnny Moyes described the moment of Bradman's century. The Melbourne crowd is never half-hearted in expressing its feelings, and the reception it gave Bradman today was extraordinary. One could see nothing but a mass of hats, umbrellas and handkerchiefs in the air, while the owners jumped up and down, clapping and yelling with joy. Then each section gave three cheers. The enthusiasm of the crowd was something that those who saw will never forget. On and on the reception went, to the extent that the game paused, and the exhausted Englishman took the opportunity to lie down and rest, as the cheering continued to ring around the ground. And how did Bradman celebrate? He must have decided he was feeling slightly hot on this scorching day, because as described by the Sydney Morning Herald, Bradman walked over and handed his cap to the umpire. The reaction up and down the continent was extraordinary, with spontaneous celebrations bursting out in cities and towns over the ensuing minutes as the news came through. Sydney's Daily Telegraph's headline read, Streets rang with applause. As every score was flashed from Melbourne, it was posted. All eyes were on Bradman, playing his valuable innings 500 miles away. When, soon after 5.30, his century was signalled, Castlereagh Street and Martin Place rang with vigorous cheers, shouts and hand clapping. The evening news in Sydney had set up a large magnetic board in Hyde Park, showing the scores and, in what sounds like an amazing precursor to a video game, it represented the players with large discs and tried to accurately show what had happened every ball. Its front page is quite extraordinary. The cricket article dominates the page with a huge headline and it relegates news of King George V's serious illness to a side panel. How Sydney was swept off its feet! Bradman's century stirred to frenzy, 40,000 outside evening news, amazing scenes, vast crowd mad with delight. The scene in Hyde Park last night, in front of the news's magnetic cricket scoring board, when Bradman got his century, was without parallel in Sydney as a demonstration. The vast crowd, not figuratively, but actually, danced with unrestrained joy when Bradman reached his century. The scene will be long remembered. A mighty roar of cheers swept the park like a hurricane. It echoed and re-echoed, then thundered out again. 
Thousands of hats were joyously tossed into the air. Women waved handkerchiefs and umbrellas. Motor cars right through to David Jones opened their throttles in a mighty honk. People on the crowded passing trams cheered and clapped their hands and tram bells clanged. The paper, really warming up, then listed the most celebrated and famous moments of the era and concluded, these and other great scenes all seem to pale alongside that remarkable demonstration last night. Some pictures on life's canvas are quickly obliterated. Others, like this one, are unforgettable. Bradman was 20 years and 124 days old, and at the time, the youngest player ever to score a test century. He moved swiftly to 112, at which point he was dismissed. He left the field to a thunderous reception. Johnny Moyes in the Telegraph wrote, Wild enthusiasm. The reception as he returned to the stand was simply amazing. The Sydney Morning Herald called it, Bradman's great day. The reception accorded him at the end of his innings exceeded in enthusiasm any previously given on an Australian ground. In the Brisbane Courier, the impressively named Captain Ballantyne wrote, Of Bradman's hundred, I can only say that his general display places him amongst the most remarkable young players I have seen this century. He played as though he felt he was monarch of all he surveyed. I would go miles to see such an innings. It was big news on the other side of the world too. How Bradman Turned the Tide for Australia was the headline in the Evening Standard in London, and the Manchester Guardian, under the headline, Well Done Bradman, wrote, I think the innings of Bradman must be counted the most heroic played so far in these tests. A mere beginner in big cricket, he had to come forth and bear a responsibility heavy enough to weigh down the shoulders of a veteran. Australia have discovered another great player in young Bradman. His star has risen in a dark hour for his country's cricket. But the final word on Bradman's performances in this match must go to the man himself. Here's Bradman's entire summary of his performance. I was brought back into the Australian team for the third test match and managed to redeem my earlier failure with scores of 79 and 112. In Melbourne, overnight between the fifth and sixth day, it poured with rain. England would be batting last on a dreaded sticky wicket. Play was delayed for an hour on day six, and when the sun came out, Australia was all out quickly for 351. England required 332 to win. It should have been far too much. But this side isn't regarded as possibly the greatest England side of all time for no reason. Out to open the innings came the famous pair of Hobbs and Sutcliffe, two batsmen renowned for their ability on treacherous wickets. They put on an opening partnership of 105, and England finished day six on the remarkable score of one for 171. And then on day seven, led by Sutcliffe's superb 135, England won with three wickets to spare. It's still the 17th highest chase in over 143 years of test cricket, and it remained England's highest ever chase for 90 and a half years until Ben Stokes's brilliance at the Headingley Test in the 2019 Ashes beat it when England made nine for 362. The final crowd figure was 262,467, the most for any test match anywhere at the time, and incredible when it's considered that Melbourne's population then was just under a million. England had won the Ashes, and the UK Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin sent a cable of congratulations to England captain Percy Chapman. The Sun newspaper summed up the mood in Australia with a large cartoon headed, No Flowers by Request. The scene was a graveyard. The priest was blessing a new grave, saying, Dust to dust, 
ashes to England. A kangaroo, tastefully dressed in trousers, is sobbing into a handkerchief, and a big British lion is looking on, apparently with sympathy, until he realise he's holding an enormous shovel and is clearly the grave digger. The epitaph reads, R.I.P. Here lies Australia's cricket hopes, defeated but not disgraced. We haven't the best of the luck. And then it concludes with what seems like a challenge for the future. Are we downhearted? I think the answer to that was generally no. The Australian public recognised that they'd been outplayed by a superb England side. There would be a three and a half week break before the fourth test would begin in Adelaide. A good length of time for people to focus on other things before returning to their Ashes obsession. Despite the Ashes being lost, there was no wavering in Australians' interest in the cricket. A 5-0 drubbing was potentially on the cards. Australia had inflicted this scoreline on England eight years earlier and were desperate not to have the humiliation returned. And having nearly won in Melbourne, and with the rapidly growing excitement about Bradman and other young players, there was a feeling that finally the side of the next generation was beginning to take shape, and that revenge in England in the upcoming 1930 Ashes might be possible. And as for Don Bradman himself, well, he had cemented his place in the side. For many of us, that would be a relief and a reason to relax slightly. But the boy from Bowral was not built that way. He was hungry for more runs and more success, and to quieten all his critics. He was only just getting started. And it's here that I'll leave the story for the moment. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, Please keep an eye out for my next mini-pod, which will detail Don Bradman's exploits in the final two test matches of that remarkable Ashes series of 1928-29. Please keep on tuning in to the regular weekly editions of Cricket Unfiltered. Look out for some of the special interviews that Menes is doing with famous cricketers. And finally, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you listen to. And if you get a chance, please give the show a review. I'm Paul Dennett, and I'll speak to you soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.